on this episode of the Africa Whisperer. It's not like I never heard of diamonds and gold. I've heard about diamonds and gold, especially mm. traveling across West Africa with war on Sierra Leone going on, but I always associated gold and diamonds with social issues. Hey, I'm Lika Sumba, and this is our journey across Africa, navigating the intricate landscapes of business, culture, and global influence from the African perspective. Vanya Leles, thank you so much for taking time out to have this conversation on the Africa Whisperer. I am, yeah, you know, just seeing everything you've done with Van Lele's diamonds and just your story. I'm excited to share it with everyone. I feel as though you're a visionary. Um, you're somebody who's consistently, you're so resilient. You have the ability to redream, to reimagine things. And in doing that, you're carrying the African continent in, you know, in narratives and spaces that we haven't really been in. So welcome the creative director and the founder of Van Lele's Diamonds. So lovely oh. to have you. Thank you so much, Lee. It's a pleasure. And I'm just so glad our paths crossed because I think it's so important for us to be able to share our stories and share our creativity, you know, and own our own narratives. So I think that's very, very important for me and for you too. And I, I listened yeah. to a few of your podcasts. By the way, congratulations. Brilliant work. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so <laughs> much. So Vanya, I, you know, um, we, we had actually had a pre-conversation about how it's so important to know the story behind the brand and the person behind the brand. So I want to take things way back. Um, you know, I think you're probably one of the first people, yeah, you're the first person I've interviewed from Guinea-Bissau. Um, it <laughs> always is like, you know, it's like this country that people kind of know about, don't really know about. I think you've got like 2.13 million people. That's tiny. That's like, uh, you know, a part of Lagos, <laughs> not yeah, even. I know. <laughs> No, no, it's true. Well, uh, nice to meet you. And you consider yourself privileged, as you said. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Medisau, we're a small country, but a land of mighty people. <laughs> love it. I love that. I love that. So you were born in Guinea-Bissau. Um, talk to us a bit about your upbringing, um, you know, what that experience was like, um, uh, you know, being born in Guinea-Bissau and then going to Lisbon. Just talk to us a bit about that journey and your family. Um, what were your parents like? What are your parents like, your siblings? Uh, well, you know, I I was born and raised in Guinea-Bissau. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have a father. Uh, my mother was a teenage mother, but okay. a very, as I said, a, a mighty person, I might okay. say. And I grew up in a very humble family, in a very, with very little resources. But, you know, and we were so happy because it's all we know, and life was simple, easy, but very happy, right? And mm. the, the difficulties, I think you only realize you're poor when you come to Europe. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's so true. <laughs> you, realize you, you realize you don't have much when you come to Europe, because I thought I had everything, and we were mm. very self-sufficient. You know, my grandmother was a very resourceful woman you know and obviously being raised in west africa in the 80s and 90s is not very wasn't very easy in terms of uh, old political instability around us but uh, you know it was not as devastating as we witness elsewhere in the world or what mm -hmm. was happening in east africa with the drought mm -hmm. but uh, in 
Guinea-Bissau, although very poor, we had an abundant sea. You know, we had fish and we we very fertile soil. So food was never a problem, you know, and clothes was also never a problem. We might not have the best doctors, we might not have the best hospitals, but everything there was there. Is what I always said. I was raised in an humble family, but, uh, Mm. you know, we had uh, everything there. So, but, and my mother being a teenage mother, obviously we didn't have great means that I would consider, you know, I see my children being raised with today, but yeah, Mm. so life was nice. (laughs) Yeah. I love that because, you know, it's, uh, you know, you said something about how you only knew, like, we only know what you don't have, like when you went to Europe and it really just speaks to the fact that we are so, as a continent, we're so rich in resource. If we measure ourselves based on, you know, what is within the continent, you know, obviously everything's not perfect, but all of those simplistic things, the beauty, knowing that you're eating food, that's actually food, (laughs) you know, all of that. (laughs) All of that. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm so fascinated with how you um, ended up studying in Lisbon um, because, you know, a lot of people might, you know, there's always a notion that if you're an African and you end up leaving the continent, you came from like a very powerfully political family, you're very affluent, you ran away with the country's money, you know, those are the things that go through people's minds. But it seems as though your mother must have sacrificed a lot for you to be able um, to be able to study. So talk to us about the journey from going to Guinea-Bissau into Lisbon to study. Well, I think that perception you just said is, was very true. For instance, all the children of the political elite in Guinea-Bissau were living in Portugal. But then you have the, the, the other section that uh, my mother has sisters living in Portugal. When she has the money, she will send me to live with my relatives, my aunts. You know, I live with two or three aunts in Portugal and so that's the other side, you know, those are not part of the elite, would send mm. the children to study with relatives mm. in um, mm. in Europe. And that was my case. My mother would, when she can, she would send me to live with my, with the, with the her the sisters that was nice. living in Portugal. And then when she cannot afford it and because everything, you know, my aunts were not, were not also very wealthy, you know, and mm. I would go back to Bissau. But every holidays, I would spend Easter holidays or summer holidays or Christmas holidays, I would go back to Bissau, you know. Mm. It was like yeah. I didn't go to like elsewhere in the world. We would go back to Bissau, we would go to Dakar, we'd go to Gambia, we'd go to Cap Verde, you know. That was our beach holidays, wow. you know. Wow. We holidayed uh on the continent, in the continent. So that was, you know, and for me, that was like great because I wanted to go back to the heat and the beach and the, <laughs> the fish. No, I hated yeah. chicken. In Europe, you eat chicken all the time. No, I wanted to eat my fish. <laughs> yeah. So you, you mentioned about how you traveled to all these different countries. How many African countries did you go to and travel around? Because Cape Verde, well, I mean, you're saying all no, this, yeah. We've been to the car, we've been to the car anytime Senegal, Cap Scarine, you know, the mm-hmm. coast, Gambia. We've we've been to I've been to Ghana as a child, Angola, mm-hmm. Cap Verde, Winston Tome mm-hmm. also. So we travel around around the continent. I, we've been to Mauritania, I think. And nice. then uh, yeah, yeah. 
So we try and attend. We definitely Guinea-Conakry because my mother has husband later on was from Guinea-Conakry. We would go a, a lot to Guinea-Conakry in Mali, Bamako. And so, yeah, so, you know, it was my hood, West Africa. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> and and. Yeah, and it must have it must be such a source of inspiration for you. I'm um, going to all these different countries around West Africa, many that people don't tend to travel to a lot, you know, even yeah. as Africans. So, and, yeah. No, for me, you know, today is what I said. What inspire my creations? What inspire my mm. storytelling? My narrative? My creativity? Mm. Is my memories growing up, growing up mm. in Bissau and traveling across the continent, you know, mm. well, across the continent, across West Africa, around yeah. West Africa, we didn't go East or, or Southeast much, but, but just like on the coast of West Africa, we did travel quite a bit. So that was, uh, you know, what fuels my inspiration. I remember like seeing the desert for the first time in Mauritania and Mali. That's why I love the desert so much. <laughs> you know, all my yeah. collections are like the Nile was inspired by the desert. We had a Sahara collection was inspired by the desert. Blazing Trails inspired by the desert. So a, a lot of it is inspired by my memories of growing up and traveling, yeah. you know, in Africa with my family. Yeah, so... Because my mother's second, uh, my mother's husband after yeah. was um, an ambassador to Guinea Conakry in in Bissau. Okay. In in I Guinea like Bissau, so that's why we travel quite a bit in West yeah. Africa. Yeah. It really sounds like you had such a rich upbringing. Um, I wish, like, yeah, if we could go back in time, I'd want to be. I would want to be uh, able to jump into your suitcase and be like, take me with you. <laughs> I want to experience this and see the beauty of the continent. Um, so Vanya, let's, let's get into just um, you, uh, your career and like how you got into what you're doing, right? Um, so before you got into um, creating um, Van Lede's Diamonds, you were actually a model. Um, yes. How did that whole process work? You know, I mean, it's no surprise. Like looking at you, I'm just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so how did how did that happen? Um, and what what was your experience like as a model? Did you, would you say you're one of those people who had a good experience, or was it just kind of like, okay, it's paying the bills. I'll you know I'll kind of get away with it. Well, I think although my world was very rich, world very informative because we. I'm from Guinea-Bissau and we travel across the West Africa and uh, my world was very informative, right? It it wasn't just my narrative from Bissau and Lisbon. It was also like uh, uh, Senegal, Gambia, Guinea-Conakry, Mali, you know, all these places mm -hmm. we've been. But I think when I went to do the high school, the last few years of high school in Lisbon, I was... Uh, you start getting in, interested, intrigued into visiting other countries, right? In Europe, America was a far-fetched dream, but like going to Paris, London, and, and all these places, I didn't know. So, and I finished high school, I started um, university, and then I was scouted as a model. I didn't do it much in Portugal. But it was just like a means to help pay the bills. You know, I was studying and working. And then when I moved to London, that was when uh, I got scouted again. I was scouted mm -hmm. again. It, it was funny. When I wanted to go to London, my agent in Portugal, you know, was like, oh my God, when you forget it, you cannot be a model in London. I was like, okay. You're like, 
Yeah, sure. Well, and, um, <laughs> that's why I never let anyone tell you put a limit on even. Mm-hmm. And she was putting a limit on my physical abilities, and I am a stunning person. Yeah, <laughs> you know, definitely, not definitely. Being like uh, arrogant. Uh, no, no. Yeah. About it, just not to know who you are and what you're capable mm-hmm. of, and and don't let someone. And she literally, oh, when you're being a model, if I had taken that so personally, I would never try to be a model when I moved to mm. London, right? And I, I initially just moved to London because I didn't speak a word of English and I wanted to learn the language. I said, I'm going to go to London for a year or so. See what's going to happen. Anyway, so in London, I was scouted as a model. I, I didn't even start trying. I was already scouted as a model. I said, ka-ching. I remember her name. <laughs> You're like, like you call her. <laughs> no, no, I remember her name. I was like, ka-ching. Anyway, became a model. was great. For me, it was means to travel the world, live a glamorous life. That I was the glamorous life perceived in the West, right? Mm. <laughs> because I think, and then uh, no more countries and cultures. I wanted to travel, and modeling gave me that uh, opportunity mm. to do that because we were cast. We were doing jobs in. I, w- I was cast to go to Miami and everything. And my booker once told me, Vanio, why don't you try to go to New York? Because in America, you have more opportunities to, to do the modeling job. I think a woman like you would be good for. In London, they were just casting me with Afro, funky, exotic, yeah. whatever. It was just like, you know. And also... At the time, the mentality was like there's only one, one model, one black model per season or yeah. per, or per town, or, you know. And I wasn't that skinny. I wasn't. You already had like a Noemi Campbell, who was dominated, who was a supermodel, right? And then you have the like Bede from Egypt, Ethiopia. I think we were coming. She started modeling at the same time, also as I was trying to enter the scene. So, but she was already far advanced. Mm-hmm. So there were not room for, for another black models. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know what? I'm going to use this for my um, benefit and just travel and enjoy. And then when I moved to New York, this is where, you know, I had a conversation with my booker agent. I was like, what are the chances? And he said, like, Vanya, the chances for you becoming a, a top model is not it's not going to happen. You, you're going to mm. continue to work well at, at the level you are are at, but not much. I was like, thank you so much for being very honest. This mm. is exactly mm. what I needed to start looking for something for something else uh, to do in my life. And I was that was giving me an alert to start searching. What can I do? I knew I didn't want to go back to, uh, to social worker. And I knew I didn't want to go back to... I didn't want to have like a, a boring job. I needed, you know, I think once we became a model, you have the bug for um, the something, luxury world, for something yes. exciting, for something more yes. vibrant. And I will always going to be grateful to modeling because modeling led me to travel. Modeling, modeling led me to the world of fine jewelry, you know, yes. and that to say, you know, and then I just quit. Um, I was thinking how to do next and how just to quit. I wasn't very happy being a model. It was too much. 
I'm a very healthy person. I never smoke. I never drank. I never touch any kind of uh, substances. So, and that world was like very, and I also started modeling late in my life, right? I wasn't mm-hmm. 12 or 14 years old. I was already a fully grown woman with great yeah. value set of what life should be and what you should do as a woman. And, and knowing who you are and you knew exactly. who you were. So people couldn't shift you around. No, yeah. couldn't shift me around, couldn't pursue me, you know, Mm. you know, I would have had fun in my own way. I remember people saying, "Ah, how can you have so much fun? You don't even drink. I said, well, (laughs) exactly. I'm having so much fun because I don't drink because if I, anyway. So, and I remember one job I did and which was a photo shoot with um, amazing fine jewelry, you know, coming from a humble family. I've never seen so much sparkling diamonds and jewelry like that mm. i knew like small tiny gold jewelry but that's not anything i would possibly wasn't the same yes mm. and i remember just being fascinated looking at the table oh my god this is so beautiful this is amazing mm. and this guy was like look at me he was like how come you're so surprised probably all of these diamonds and gemstones came from home con- your home continent and mm. i was like whoa and, you know, it's not like I never heard of diamonds and gold. I've heard about diamonds and gold, especially yeah. traveling across West Africa with war on Sierra Leone going on. But I always associated gold and diamonds with social issues. Mm. Never with of the amount course, of wealth. because of the conflict. Never yes, with the amount yes. of wealth. Mm. When I say wealth, it generates. It's not wealth in money being rich and having possessions. The amount of wealth it generates in wealth, um, in um, in skills, in em- employment, in generational mm. wealth, generational skills, generational, mm. you know, you see a city like Antwerp, pretty much every single person is employed in the diamond industry, and yet mm. Belgium doesn't produce an ounce of diamonds. You see all these amazing cities, you know, developing in that using the diamonds the, the I come from Africa and then you you don't see the same kind of impact on the continent, you know. Mm. So growing up in the 80s and 90s in West Africa, I was like, I associated gold and diamonds with the social issues, but this is what is being mm. transformed outside mm. the continent. And we didn't even know that. I, yeah. I had no clue. Yeah. You know, it, and it, then um, yeah. that really sparkled as a curiosity in me and a mm-hmm. bug that I, you know, I'm very persistent. If if I put my head something, I follow through and I really yeah. work hard to. And I start researching, you know, to see all these brands, all these diamond companies, all these jewelry companies, I'm sure they're going to have some reference to where these diamonds come from, these stones come from. This was 2003, 2004, mm. right? And in New York, I was like, oh, this brand exists for 160 years. This brand exists for almost 200 years. This brand exists for 140 years or 100 years. I'm sure they're going to mention where the diamonds come from, or I will see someone who look like me in those brands, in those companies. Nothing. Zero. Nada. Not even the acknowledging that it came from Africa. Nothing. The countries in, yeah. in Africa where the diamonds coming from, no one was mm. mentioning it. I was like, how mm. can this be possible? How can this 
And then you think this is the reason why when I was growing up, I was only associating them with this because this is what, you know, the powers who dominate this industry want us to to keep thinking, right? To keep believing and to keep knowing. And then I then said, I'm going to go to the Diamond District. I will meet a dealer or, a, or someone who looked like me who could possibly advise me how to... That was the biggest shock, you know. I got to the Diamond District, you know, you see generations of people working together, but there's no Africans or someone who look like me in that district, literally none. And you see third generation, fourth generation, families working together, community neighbors working together, and then but everybody's sourcing in Africa. Everybody's buying stones in Africa. The but there's no African, like there's no African generation. There's no African, like you don't even see it. There's not even an African family who has a stake in the game. That's, yeah. yeah. Zero. I was, mm. I, was, I was so shocked. I remember going back home and telling my, my mother that evening, I was like, you know what? I want to have my, I want to have a, I want to become a diamond tier. I want to have a diamond brand and I want to have a high jewelry brand where I honor mm. the countries where the gemstones come from and be owned by an African, have an African heritage and authenticity to it. My mother was and like, how, what did your mother react like? Yeah, I mean, she must have been like, okay, so you're modeling and now you want to do this. How does that, yeah. how does that conversation I'm, happen? Yeah. My mother was like, well, first of all, you know, she didn't. She didn't want to dishearten me. She said, "Like, how would you possibly enter that industry, mm. and how would you possibly have anything within that industry?" And she was like, "Okay, why don't you try to get a foot in the door and then work in industry? If you get lucky, someone opening the door for you because it's so generational, and then you can work in industry for about ten years before you start dreaming of anything remotely of what you're telling mm-hmm. me now. So for her and for me, it was so far fetched, but in my head, it, it wasn't impossible. But this mm-hmm. is me being naive and innocent, you know. It, being naive sometimes is such a blessing because yes. what I know today, if I knew back then, I wouldn't have done it. Yeah, because it's if so you knew hard. the journey, you wouldn't have gotten into the car, right? You would have well, just said, "I'll stay I knew here." The journey will be long. I didn't know it was going to be this hard. I didn't uh, know people were trying to stop me, or mm. sabotage me, or mm. break break what I was trying to build. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying that the giants who play in this industry, to my our very own people, mm. you know, to people yeah. who look like me, I was like, oh, why are you doing this? You know, why are you yeah. here? Why are yeah. you here? Why are you doing? You know, mm-hmm. to the point that having clients tell me to my face, a wealthy African person look at me, no. I'd rather buy Cartier or I'd rather buy this and this brand. I was like, mm. because rather than buy from me, you know, going back at that point, I was, uh, I was, I was like, where can I start? I start researching. Long story short, I start researching and I went and I said, okay, I want to go back to study again. And at, at that point I saved in, 
I saved enough money and I went to d- uh, and I went to do um, GIA. I enrolled myself at Gemological Institute of America, and then I studied there. I did gemology course, I sh- the pearl course, the design course, the hand design course, the business mm. course, and then I was like I was armed. But at that point, I moved back to London because it was easier to study in London than study in New York. And because of health insurance and technicalities, it was also easier just to live in Europe. I'm closer home. And anyway, so I came back to London. I continue at the JA campus in London. And then by the time we were graduating, I only wanted to work for Graf Diamonds because Graf Diamonds at the time was a family owned, still a family owned business. There were... smaller so 2005 i just you know we graduated and i just started sending my cv to graph i sent them like 15 times my cv and then i had no answer i literally stalked them i went to the store until one day i saw mr graph coming and i went to him mind you i wasn't speaking as good english i'm speaking today my english was very broken i said like mr graph my name is vania this is my cv i would love to work for family for your for your company i don't have experience but i work very hard i learn very fast and i'm very very smart I'm like whoa that's a lot of varies i said yes i can do it for you <laughs> Yeah. So he took the envelope off my hand. He went inside. A few days later, I got a phone call and and I went for an interview. And then he, at the end of the interview, he was like, you know why I called you? When I entered my building, the security team called me and asked me if I knew who you were. I said, no, I don't know. So, well, she's been walking around the building for the last month, but we didn't know who she was. She didn't look threatening. And and then today we saw her speaking to you. So this is why and he, he was like, you've been around. I was like, yes, I sent my CV 15 times through the post. I had no answer. So I thought I would come to your doorstep and then give you my CV in hand. And and I got a job. <laughs> Vanya, you know, I, this is so powerful because I feel even um, with the way that things are now, you know, everybody assumes that it's always quick. If you get an, a, a rejection, you're kind of like, you know, move on, like you're being redirected. And sometimes it's the case. But I just love this level of, of your conviction and your resilience to be like, I want to work with, with the Graf family. This is who I want to work with. I'm sending a CV 15 times. If not, I'm going to walk around the building. Is there something in your childhood or something that you maybe learned from your mom that maybe it has instilled that kind of resilience and persistence and determination to be able to achieve what it is that you wanted to achieve? I define defied so many odds, you know, mm-hmm. and looking at my mother, being a teenage mother, abandoned by the, by the person who was supposed to be by my my father and building a life, surviving, making sure I also survived. And then she had, we had, um, she had lost everything like three times in her life. The last time in, in 98 with the civil war, she left the country mm. with the clothes on her body and, and never came back. She went back after few years, um, 10 years, but uh, after the war, but she built you know, her life from zero three times, you know. And and the last time I was like, you know, with the war, I was I was already an adult. I was like, Mom, don't you think you, 
you need to see a therapist, whatever. I said, no, Vani, what I need is a house and a job. <laughs> I don't need to see a therapist. Yeah. I might do yeah. at some point, but right now this is what I need. These are my in- mm. immediate needs. So giving up is never an option. And mm. if you want to have, if you come from a humble family, you have to fight for everything you have. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. So then if you do, and she's already said, you're healthy, you're pretty, you are already winning in life. Right. Anything else you have to work hard. It's a bonus. So what do I have to lose if I wanted to work for this family? What I had to do, I will do it in the most mm-hmm. honorable, hardworking manner. Right. And I wanted mm-hmm. to work for him. You didn't answer my CV the 15 times I sent. I'm going to walk around your building <laughs> until I, mm, I, I see I you that. in life, in person. And then, and he worked. You know, he could have not worked, right? And he worked and I went and I worked very hard. And I was very, I was very, you know, I was the first one to arrive, the last one to leave my job. It was a dream job. Fast forward, I got headhunted to go and work for the BS Diamond Jewelers. At that point, I already wanted to work for a corporation. My aim goal was always to create my own brand, my own African Mm -hmm. heritage, own, you know, female brand, you know. But as the more I work in industry, the more I learn, the more I know is is virtually impossible for me to have Mm -hmm. the brand I have today. But I didn't give up also because I said, you know what, let me just put my head down, work hard, build my reputation, build my name, people to get to know me. I would go to every fairs, you know. And for me at the time, traveling to all the fairs, you would go and see all these beautiful, you'd go to an exhibition where you have 3,000 exhibitors, everybody selling gemstones and diamonds, but no one was mentioning. I remember seeing... Colombian emeralds, you know, mm. and you see Burma rubies, but no one was mentioning Zambian emeralds. And Zambian mm. exist, Zambian emeralds, Zambian emeralds exist for 100 million years. Ruby yeah. has been here for 400 million years, but no one's rubies from Mozambique. But no one was mentioning these gemstones. But yet they were in the market. They've been mined. They've been traded. They've been polished. They've been put in beautiful, magnificent jewelry, but magnificent jewelry. But no one was talking about these countries where the Jamesons were coming from. It's almost like, um, you know, historically the world always wants to strip the African story from Africa being, you know, the place where a lot of things are coming from. So I just find it so fascinating yeah. that you having direct experience with that. But you were Absolutely. you were saying about the diamonds as well at the time. No one was interested in mentioning where the diamonds was coming from. If it, mm. if there were there was, it was not as loud as it is today. Today, every brand is very loud about it. But those are, those yeah. are the same brands who's been existing for hundred hundred yeah. years. You know, yeah. you know, and uh, decades and decades. It's just like you know, yeah. it's almost like you know, it's better late than never. So I'm I'm glad they're putting a spotlight on those communities. So and they put a, a spotlight on mining companies, on conditions, on countries to make it better and right and equitable for the communities where they're mining. It's still not equitable. It's still a long way to go, but at least it's better than it was a hundred years ago, before or fifty years ago, or twenty years ago. 
because mm -hmm. of the spotlight needed to be put on those communities and, and people operating on those communities. Mm -hmm. So I think um, we came a long way. And I I can proudly say I had my noise, my little noise to the bigger pla to this platform to mm -hmm. highlight the countries where the gemstones come from, especially with the Zambian and Mozambican. Mm -hmm. I cannot change how the, how they operate, how the countries operate, and the, the political systems or the mining the mining company deals. My job is to say in Mozambique there are rubies. In Mozambique there yes. are stones being used in the market to highlight what exists there. My job, my purpose is in Zambia. Zambian emeralds are as beautiful as Colombian emeralds, you know, and they have been in the market for for decades and decades and decades. Yeah. So this yeah. is my job. This is my job. This is my purpose. You know, mm. a lot of people say, oh, but Africa has so many other problems. I said, it does, but you also have these, you know. Yes. We have to be able to tell, a, a, like, a, 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 how do I say, a balanced story about Africa. Yeah, it has to have, say, everything. Yes. Yeah, concurrently. I said, yeah. Colombia also have other major problems, but you're still yes. advertising Colombian emeralds. Yes. Burma yes. have other major problems, but you still advertise Burma, Burma rubies. So mm. don't give me Why that yeah. speech. But yeah. So my purpose is that. Your purpose is highlight everybody else's stories. Yeah. The Noelle, a friend of mine, her purpose is to highlight education and, and water wells. So we all have a purpose. And this is my purpose. Don't tell me my purpose is less is less important because mm. it's luxury. Well, luxury create employment. Diamond create employment. Look at generations of people or diamonteers, mm. of family diamonteers who lift them, who build their family generations and family wealth out of African diamonds. You know, so don't mm -hmm. tell me is isn't it doesn't have a purpose because it does. You know, yes, yes. you might you might not need you might not be water doctor or teacher, but he has other purpose. You know mm -hmm. that collectively we can build the narrative that we own. So, so um, even with everything that you're saying and the access you had, you worked with Sotheby's, um, you worked with De Beers, you had obviously started out your career with, um, with Graf and all of that, starting your own fine jewelry line. That, to me, that seems, you see, this is the part that I'm just like, in my mind, like if I were to start, I'm like, okay, I can see like studying like perhaps and everything, but to actually start it must be so capital intensive. It must be so difficult to break through and to get people to want to buy, um, you know, and to, to be, to be able to, to want to be your customers. And even with that, you've been able to get, um, Queen Rania has been one of your customers. You have Rihanna who's worn your stuff. You have, um, princess, uh, the princess of Wales, Catherine, um, who's worn your stuff, which is incredible, but it's it's easy to look at that. But I'm so fascinated with how you actually got the money to get this thing started because I heard that you convinced people to borrow you diamonds <laughs> to the value of one million pounds in order to be able <laughs> to start your range. Vanya, I need to understand those skills so I can try it <laughs> in other things. I tell somebody, give me your diamonds worth one million pounds and I'll, you know, I'll make something of it. That's incredible. So talk to us about just that journey. I think it's, there's so many um, nuggets in there. Yes. So at that point when I was ready, I already worked 10 years. I've been yeah. 10 years in the industry, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I, after, uh, 
after the beers, I went to work for Sotheby's mm-hmm. uh, as a jewelry client manager for the jewelry department. And I was able mm-hmm. to build an extensive client list because my job was just entertaining clients also, mm-hmm. as well as valuing the jewelry states. So mm-hmm. when when I left uh, Sotheby's, I decided to create my own brand. This is like a year 11 years passed. I remember going back to the conversation I had with my mom. You asked for 10 years, I gave you 11. <laughs> One year <laughs> so here I am. But, you know, working for these companies, you don't make money. And at the time I was engaged with my husband now. And I remember I had, I never said this before, but I had 5,000 pounds wow. in my saving. I could do something with 5,000 pounds in jewelry today. I look what I spent to make one piece. 5,000 pounds is nothing, but I had 5,000 pounds. I decided to hire an agency to build my website. I designed my own logo and the agency just fixed the logo a bit. We built a website. I bought very nice stationery, like beautiful, everything was done to a taste with the taste and elegance. And then I rented a service office in Belgravia. So that 5,000 gone because I had to give the rent deposit, build a stationery, create a website. Then I went to one of the diamond suppliers we used to work with when I was working for the brands. I was like, Yoshi, I have, this is my plan. I'm creating my own brand. I already have the brand. I have the office. I just don't have something to sell. (laughs) You're like, everything is there minus the product. Minus the product. And I cannot sell jewelry without the product. And I need you to, I would need you to have diamonds and memo. But because it's what I always say, your reputation is the most, mm. and integrity is the most important mm. thing you have in an industry. Mm. Remember, I didn't start with connections. I didn't start with the family linked. I didn't start with money. I didn't, I started with zero. You're not an African princess who people, there's nothing like that. You're just. No, 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 no. Yeah, zero. And then I will get to that point in a little bit. And yeah. And Yoshi was like, well, you know, but yes, we know you, Miss Vanya, but just lend you diamonds. And I remember his wife, the very Jewish Orthodox, his wife was like, Yoshi, give the the girl some diamonds. She will come. She will pay you. So his wife nudged him and was like, are you sure? I was like, give her the diamonds. Otherwise, how she's going to start? How she's going to have a business? So... That was great. I was like, thank you. <laughs> He's like, Vanya, bring me my bring me the money or my diamonds back. I said, yes. Now I need you to agree on terms. I need 12 months <laughs> to give you. Yeah. Because anyway, gave me very good terms. And then we signed a piece of paper. It gave me about 12, 13 diamonds. The total value was just over a million. And then I went to the workshop I used to work with. And the workshop, I told them, I used to work, I knew them. I was like, I would like to make these designs. I made some sketches, I made some designs. I would like to make these pieces of jewelry, but I don't have money to pay you for the gold, the micro pavé and the labor. Can you give me good terms? Again, I'm always forever grateful 
to my workshop in Italy. I still work with them. They made all my jewelry, the engagement rings, the classic. I started with the classic identity rings Mm. and everything they made. And then I contacted my first clients. And then friend, my ex-colleague at the Beers introduced me to a few of her friends were getting engaged and I sold them my first engagement ring. But as soon as I sell something, I go straight and I pay Yoshi and I pay my diamond supplier, Yoshi's name. Now everybody knows his name. And then I go and I pay my workshop because your reputation is all you have. In some of the sales, I made very little money, but I had no profit for me. I don't pay me until I pay them first period. Mm. And then a little by little, I saw all the pieces. I made some profit. I reinvest in a business. Then I can go and buy some diamonds. I have buy, I buy some and it give me 50% of memo. I buy 50%. The workshop makes me some pieces. They make 50%. I pay 50%. So this is how I was able to build the first three years of my business. And mm. then one of, one of, in 2015, one of my clients were like, Vanya, what do you need to start your business? Because in you, I wasn't this, you know, although I have a fancy website, I have this fancy stationery. He knew that. But he knew the truth, what was happening behind the scenes. <laughs> well, he's, he's a businessman, right? And he was buying yeah. it for his partners. Yeah. And then uh, I was like, capital. This business is, is capital intense. I don't have it. And my, mm. uh, and then, then I forgot. And then my husband now at the time wanted to, to propose. And he said, Vanny, I can give you an amazing engagement ring or I can give you the money to, to, to I was like, no, 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 forget engagement ring. Give me the money. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'll put it to good use. Oh, I love that. Give me the money. I, I invest the money into the business. And he gave me this beautiful ring that I wear every oh. day. And this was oh. my engagement ring. So simple, nice. This and my business are like my engagement rings, right? So with, yeah. with that's, um, he ended up saying that's the best investment he ever made because he doesn't ever have to buy jewelry again in his life. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, so then, um, you know, and then this investor came in, he invested, he owned a piece of the company. We actually just bought him out. I own the business 100% as of uh, last week. (laughs) Oh, congratulations. So, yes, we've been able to buy him out. And he, you know, he, he, he... invested with that money we were able to create the brand we have today we created our yes. first collection using zambian emeralds i call it legends of africa honoring the beauty of zambian emeralds and then our mm. second collection was out of africa honoring only rubies from mozambique and rubelites honoring the beauty of mozambican rubies and gemstone mm. because mm. that was my and i remember when we had this fancy showroom on Bond Street, opposite graph, it's almost like full circle has gone by between Cartier and Chanel. Prime location, I wanted that. This is an African brand sitting alongside mm. all these brands who's been mined like in Africa yeah. for decades, if, if not mm. centuries, right? Because mm. of Tiffany's 160 years old now. So, and then I wanted that and everything was done to, 
perfection, the taste mm. and elegance and qualities there. The same hands that make all these big brands jewelry are the same hands that make my mm. jewelry. So, yeah. and and the same, so where they buy the diamonds, that's where I buy my diamonds. You know, this is just, yeah. and so, so that's, um, so that's, um, how and at the time I remember like hiring PR agencies. The first PR agency was like, well, Vanny, I would tone down an African tone a bit because journalists won't care, consumers won't care. I was like, the the sole purpose that I wanted to enter this industry is to create this representation, this gap that is mm. lacking. Mm. Are you telling me to tone it down? I think I need a different PR agency. So I went to second PR agency and then I went to third PR and then the fourth PR agency finally work on my terms, mm -hmm. push the narrative, the authentic and genuine and beautiful narrative that it is Vanellas, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. There's no other brand like me. There's no other no jewelry owner, like high jewelry owner of a mm -hmm. brand like mine or like me. And my story is one of resilience. But when I started mm -hmm. the stereotype, I, I remember like having some journalist editor. Oh, so who's your family? There we go. Are again. you joking? Yeah. yeah that's... Oh, she's in diamond industry. She's a daughter of a rich, corrupt politician. That's yeah. all they... She's like an African princess somewhere. Yeah. She's oh. somehow connected. She's ran and away I with the country's speak... money. Yeah. And I speak Portuguese. Oh, you're from Angola. Is your father the president? Yeah. Said, no, oh. father, I'm not yeah. from Angola. Wow. And I don't have yeah. a father. And, you know, you're yeah. almost like trying to break down every single stereotype they expect you to be. And then, oh, you, your jewelry, it was like, oh, I was expecting ethnic jewelry, like bead and brass and whatever. Mm. No, it's fine, high jewelry, <laughs> you know? I so, mean, it, it, you know, all of these questions that they were asking you, it's almost as though people are saying, why are you here? Why are you in our space? Why do you have a seat at the table? And you're, you know, it, it was almost like people, I can imagine for you, it, it just sounds as though they were trying to justify or, or to, trying to get you to explain your position. Why yeah, are you here? This is presence. our world. My presence. Your presence, you know? Why? Yeah. You know, expecting to, oh, who's your investor? I was like, mm. when I explained them everything, even telling them my story, I was like, oh, mm. who's your investor? It's, uh, I was like, my investor is a British hedge fund guy. Couldn't be a squeaky yeah. clean, you know? And uh, by yeah. the way, all this is in a company house. Mm. You know, it's a public information. They can see mm. because in the UK, if a registered business, Every investor, you have to, partner is registered. Mm. It's, it's public information. Yeah. It's almost like just kind of to justify, you know. And I'm like, no, I work very hard. I did my studies. I'm not like a daughter mm. of someone or a wife of someone rich. You my, are Vanya. I'm, I am yes. Vanya. I'm, I yes. built this. I'm standing here strong and proud and capable showing you what i have created through sweat and tears nothing mm. else and and vanya also you know i'm i'm kind of interested because there was a point when you said about um and we actually had this conversation uh you know about uh how as africans outside of a lot of the gemstones coming from africa and being sourced from africa um originally um 
along with other um, parts of the world. There's also the the fact that Africans, we were the first to kind of adorn and to wear gold. It was who we were as a people. I mean, even being in Ghana, um, when you go to the Ashanti family, it's like, you know, in the traditional days, I'm just like, it's not like small gold. It's like, boom, you know, it's like people, it's part of the attire, but uh, you know, just talk to us, you know, where do you think that we lost the mark when we had all of the skills in Africa, we were able to do it. And then now, you know, we, we're not even really manufacturing on the continent. So um, what are your thoughts around that? You know, African civilizations were one of the first, one of the first civilizations where using precious metal, gold, and precious gemstones to adorn our bodies. You know, mm. we have the story of Mansa Musa, you have the story of Queen um, Makeda, and you have the story of Cleopatra, Cleopatra, you know, carving emeralds, you know, adorning a body. Mansa Musa, his cloth was gold, you know, however yes. heavy that was, and, um, and were made of gold. So, and in, you know, unfortunately, we had those four, four, four to four hundred to five hundred year years, if I want to be politically correct, gap in our history where we had uh, slavery, colonization, that mm. you know, dismantling the kingdoms of uh, East Central Africa, you know, from Ashanti, you know, mm. all these kingdoms that we were manufacturing jewelry and producing. Not only jewelry with the gold, but cloths and you know weaving mm. gold into into cloths, right? So I think um, with that, uh, you know, centuries of of the industry being disrupted and kingdoms and families and empires being dismantled through slave mm. trade and all, we lost. And that skills got transferred elsewhere and it got mm. better and, you know, industrialized elsewhere, like India, China, and Europe. Mm. Like you have cities in Valencia that they all did, every single family is a jeweler maker. You have Ida Uberstein in Germany. Every single family is a stone cutter, stone polisher. Germany needs the stones that come from outside Germany to be able to polish, but the entire city wow. is just polishers and cutters, the skills are there. So African lost that skills, lost that trade, lost that, you know, this is why voices like mine and companies like mine are so important because mm. almost like it, it might not going to happen in my lifetime, but definitely my children's lifetime, we mm. ought to be able to see these skills being reestablished in, in on a continent. Yes. But yes. our our politicians, our leaders need to be willing to mm. to be able to reinforce that, to create that, encourage that, because you know, I cannot buy Ghanaian gold in Ghana, but I can mm. buy Ghanaian gold in Dubai, in in mm. Den in Denmark or in Birmingham. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's crazy. It, mm. You know, if I want to buy Angolan diamonds, I was literally told I can buy Angolan diamonds. Oh, but not in Luanda. You have to buy it in Dubai. <laughs> and you know, and you know, the, the thing is, like, you know, I, you said this at the beginning of the conversation, but people look at um, what you do with Van Lele's diamonds, and they kind of are like, well, this is not a serious issue in Africa. People, you know, like in certain parts, people maybe don't have food. There's all of these other issues. Luxury is is a whole other, you know, it's it's not really a necessity. But when you consider the fact that pre um, colonization and 
all of the, the challenges that the continent went through, you know, this was what was feeding and sufficing a lot of people. And when you consider the fact that a whole cities in, in, you know, in Europe, like you've articulated, are built built off this um, diamond industry, the gemstone industry, and they don't even have a single mine. It's, it's really clear that our leaders have to be in a position where it's like, as we're rebuilding and retelling the story of Africa and taking ownership, like what you're doing with Van Lele's, there has to be a place where we, there is a level of like investment, even as us as Africans, you know, I feel like we should be like if I want to buy diamonds, I should be looking at Vanellas. If I want to, you know, I should be going to you first, yeah. um, in order to be able to create jobs, you know, because we need multiple jobs and multiple opportunities. Absolutely, Lee. Yeah. I think you, you, know, we need in- industrialization. And mm. so, I spoke at at a conference a few years ago, just just before COVID. Okay, everybody says it's so difficult, it's impossible. Dubai did it. Now, Dubai has the biggest mm. diamond center in the world, one of, right? And it did it in mm. 20 years. 20 years ago, Dubai was plain desert. Concurrently, they they built, you know, all the diamond conferences are held in Dubai. Let's have diamond conferences mm. in an African-producing diamond country, right? Why exactly. do we have to fly, you know, use a... Um, Airways use the hotel, the taxis, the restaurants, the shopping, and go to an Af- a conference of diamonds when Dubai doesn't mind an ounce of diamonds. You know, it's not like mm. I said, like it has been done. Hong Kong, the jewelry hub and the, the diamond bourse. Africa doesn't have one functioning diamond bourse. One. Hmm. It, it baffles me. And it was like, mm. you know, and we have the product. It's almost like divide and conquer. They can have the product. They cannot have the skills. They cannot industrialize the, the industry. Otherwise, you know, we will have generational Africans, diamondiers, you know, or jewelers, you know, because mm. it, it is creating wealth and employment and skills and mm. knowledge. Mm. You know, because what they tell you is, is not important, is not yeah. necessary, but it's creating wealth, skills for other people, employment elsewhere. Why not here? Why not yeah, on the continent? Yeah. Right? My yeah. dream is to produce jewelry on the continent, but for me to be, have this strong narrative, the strong product, the quality that is r- rivaling other brands, for even our Africans to buy my my product, I have to produce it, you know, elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I have to produce it in Italy, but you know, we have to encourage this. Okay, this African person can do it without mm-hmm. resources, connection, and any help from outside world. You know, mm-hmm. yes, I had help. I had like my Mr. Graf giving me my first job. Yoshi and his after mother. you after you applied fifteen times. Yes. so it was help after you you really pushed yourself. I yes. pushed myself and stoked him, and then Yoshi and his and his wife lending me the diamonds at the workshop in Italy mm. to make my jewelry, right? I had help, mm. but I have to put myself in a position to be given the help, to be mm-hmm. given the hand. And I built mm-hmm. my company and I was selling to this client of mine for him to be able to invest in my company because I have built something through, through mm-hmm. nothing. You know, mm-hmm. I moved to London. I didn't even speak a word of English, you know. Yes, mm-hmm. I knew, hello, what's your name? How are you? How old are you? Is what I always say, you know, and it has to to our African counterpart. It has been done already. 
mm. elsewhere. Let's just copy. The wheel mm. has been done. Let's just r- replicate it in in mm. countries like Namibia, like Rwanda, mm. who has infrastructure, like Cap Verde, mm. who has infrastructure, who has a security. Yes, we can always implement more securities. We have to have the willingness to mm. do so. And I still feel like most people don't have the willingness. You know, this is why I admire sometimes countries like the Middle East. They don't think about 10 years. They don't think about my generation. They think about in 100 years. Yes, the generations it has to be come. generational. Yeah. We cannot yeah. make policy decisions just for the next 10 years. We have to make mm. policy decisions to impact generations to come. Mm. This is what I think is lack when we look at our natural resources. It's fantastic, but it's only 10 years. Yeah. Well, you have to think what's gonna, what value is going to bring to the company, to the country, for your people, not for the next, not for one generation, but mm. for two or three generations ahead. Mm. And then see like what impact we want to have on a continent. Mm. Sometimes I see all these companies where, oh, we're building a road, we're building a ma- we're building a school, we're building a crash, we're building a clinic. And they call it impact. In my opinion, those things are imp- could have been impactful a hundred years ago. Mm. Today, don't call it an impact. It's just like breadcrumbs mm. sprinkle a lot. Along the road, a real impact is when an African diamond-producing country become the next Antwerp, employing mm. two hundred fifty thousand people. Generation of families are benefiting for this industry. Are becoming skills master and skillful and knowledgeable. Mm. Impact means having a diamond bourse on an African-producing country that will generate the amount of sales and movement the diamond bourse in Dubai, who has been there for t- less than 20 years, will generate. That's a real impact on mm. an African-producing diamond country. Mm. Anything else is for their own marketing and PR benefit. What you said about really thinking generationally, it's something that unfortunately we don't think of much, you know, as, as African people. And hopefully this starts to change. Um, you know, Vanya, one of the things I really love about Van Lele's Diamonds is the fact that you, uh, and you had alluded to this, you really put Africa at the front and center. Um, and I know that, you know, I want to go into the range a bit. Um, I know that I think it was the Enchanted Garden, if I'm not mistaken, this was inspired off the batik fabrics and that you had seen and everything. And, and I just love the fact that all of it has has like this great story. You're unashamed and saying, this is based on the batik fabric. This was, you know, you're, you're telling all those stories. So talk to us about some of the ranges, um, the Nile range, uh, the Enchanted Garden, um, just the inspiration behind those and, and you know, the time it takes to create them. Well, to create, I first have, a, I have time because I make my own decisions. So I don't rush, mm. I don't push. But for instance, the Enchanted Garden, you quite rightfully mentioned, was inspired by a piece of cloth, an African batik, mm. a print. We wanted to mm. do an earring shape. We found this cloth that was so beautiful. I think you have it on our website. It's almost like, yes. like a flower cuff. That was where Enchanted Garden was born from. Mm. You know, and 
And that lent itself to this beautiful piece of uh, jewelry that, that we actually became our best known um, collections. And then our blazing trail collections were based on like the desert, as, a, as I was saying earlier, the desert really ins inspires me, moves me, because I just love mm. the magnificent sight we saw in Mali and Mauritania as a child. I just mm. love that. And to know that as, and at the time I thought, I thought that was endless world, you know, <laughs> and mm. Europe was on the other side of it. <laughs> and uh, so then the Nile was, was just like inspired by this ge geographic, um, ge um, geometric uh, shapes mm. and uh, we found uh, in um, in Egypt when I traveled there and then you know and then we tried to to tell the storytelling behind each piece of um, mm. each piece of our jewelry the collection and the shape that lend them, themselves found in a in a tile in a in a pyramid in, in Egypt that then lend itself for us to create that shape and mimic that shape into fine jewelry. Mm, I love that. And the, the jewelry really is beautiful. It stands out. I don't know if there's another jewelry range that when you look at it, you feel like you, you in, you step into that world. You know, it's, mm -hmm. I don't know how to explain it. It's, it's able to, it's almost like, I, I know most jewelry is art and jewelry is art, but it really feels like all of these paintings, but in the form of jewelry, telling like different stories about Africa. So it's just, the range is, is incredible. Um, you know, you I'm also really our, fascinated. I mean, sorry, you will love Pardon? our upcoming collections that really tells magnificent stories. <laughs> you will love that. Oh, I really like. And in terms of like, I mean, because we had mentioned before about some of the clientele that you've had uh, from people outside of Africa. Um, what are your hopes and aspirations in terms of having, um, you know, like similar clientele in Africa? You know, what would you say to people who are in a position to be able to um, buy Van Lele's diamonds? Um, you know, um, what would you say to that? Like, what kind of people would you like to see wearing um, your range? Nothing will give me more pride and satisfaction to see our celebrated women and men wearing vanilla's diamonds, you know? Mm. And I said, mm. there's an African say, the sky is big for all the birds to fly. So they can own any, all the other brands, but for me to have our, our iconic um, men and women, when I say, when I say our means like, you know, African and African in the diaspora mm. to wear it, it would just, it's an extra step of validation. Yes. Having mm. Queen Rania wearing my, wearing, owning my creations, you know, we don't mm. lend jewelry and they, all the three women own their own pieces of Vandellas they wear. And uh, it was just like a huge, you know, her seeing it and liking it and buying it. I was like, wow. That's a testament of my brand speaks globally to the global I think she wore the Kilimanjaro range, right? Yeah, the Kilimanjaro. The Kilimanjaro. Yeah, the Kilimanjaro yes. is one of the pieces she has. And she wore it several mm. times already. And, uh, mm. you know, I'm just like so proud every time she, <laughs> she was. is a testament that my, my story, my company, what my company stands for, is very much 
African, but the story of the woman behind it speaks globally, speaks mm -hmm. to the woman sitting in in Lagos, in Accra, in New York, in Atlanta, in Riyadh, and in Jordan, you know, in Singapore. Mm -hmm. So it speaks to, it's a story of resilience. It's a story of a, mm -hmm. a woman who took her creativity to the highest of heights with hard work. When I was reading up and, and seeing some of the work that you've done, I love the fact that you're so passionate about um, philanthropy. And just from this conversation, I think people can tell, you know, there's some people who are involved in philanthropy because it's the right thing to do. But clearly there's something inside of you that burns so much that it's, you're so passionate about it. So um, you've worked with the Malaika Foundation. Um, also, I, I believe that you're one of the people who assisted um, the AU when it came to COVID uh, relief and being able to send a portion of the sales of the Nile collection um, to, to assist with that during COVID. Congratulations on that. That's, that's beyond impact. Um, and also uh, you being able to, the, I, I believe it was like 100% sales of the gold and diamond range from the Nile range that goes to the Malaika Foundation. What is it about, you know, COVID, obviously it was a global crisis. Africa was, at the, was not receiving the assistance that the rest of the world was. But with the Malaika Foundation, what is it about that foundation specifically? Because even when you see the pictures of you with them, you, you can see that there's like something that glows inside of you. What is it specifically that you feel is so important? Um, first of all, I think the founder of the Malaika Foundation, my dear friend Noella, she's a remarkable young woman. What she has done, mm -hmm. I wish what she's done and achieved and the impact she's able to generate. I wish most of these NGOs would be, I feel, doesn't even does a tenth of what she does or of the impact mm. she provides to, to society. Well, I mm. believe however small you have, you can always give that a little bit to someone else who have far less than you. Mm. You know, my company is not a big company, you know, but I, I always believe that you, you have to be generous of soul, of spirit. And, mm. and I always looking for charities I could partner with. And I partnered with some in the past, but then it, it didn't feel right because mm. it didn't feel right for the one reason, because I needed to, I don't have much resources to donate and I wanted to see the greatest impact in the community where that charity operates. And for me, I chose Malaika not only because I met Noella, really inspired her, and then I went to the school personally, to the village, and mm. to that, to one charity. I want to know everything about it. I said, I'm coming. Mm. And I went, and it was the most amazing thing I did because mm. I know my the little money I gifted, I donated to Malaika will go a long way and will mm. go directly to where it's needed, not to a mm. big office's rent in London or the CEO biggest bonuses and, or salaries. Everything goes back to the community. So that's why I chose Malaika. It's one only foundation because I cannot spread too much. I wish I could do of more, course, yeah. but I don't have yeah. the resources to do more. Mm. Hopefully in the future, if I have you know, all our people behind us supporting us. That would be great. Mm. I could give more. Right now, just focus just one to see the impact going further and further and further. Mm. further. Mm. So then when the Afro champion approached me at the time of COVID-19, I was like, yes, of course, you know, I mm. have limited resources, but let's 
all the cells, donations, all the cells, um, uh, receipts, and we're going to donate a portion to the call. I want to be at at the front center of it and let me do what I can help. But, so, but that was, you know, and I'm actually also very glad like Africa responded very well to COVID because we're so experienced yes. in dealing with the viral because of everything, yeah, Ebola, everything. For that, yeah. yeah. So actually, we yeah. were very well equipped to deal with it immediately. But mm. and then, yeah. So this is uh, for me choosing one small charity where I can see the life of the lives of people that they work with are impacted almost immediately. It's very key mm. for me to see that result. Mm. Yeah. And Vanya, before I let you go um, and just, uh, you know, I do want to close off the conversation about asking about the kind of legacy um, that you want to build, because this, the whole fine jury is 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 generational. And I think that that's one of the, t- the themes that have come through. It's, it's generational. It's a story of resilience. It's a story of vision. Um, it's a story of reimagining and rebuilding. Vanya, just in closing, it's been like a fantastic conversation, you know. Um, you've already achieved so much. I know that you feel that you have so much further to go, but it's like, I feel as though just your presence, your story, um, you know, coming from the background that you came from, it. I hope that it inspires people who, who don't come from privileged backgrounds, who also feel that, you know, I mean, they also feel like, how am I ever going to get to the next place? You know, who, who have an idea and don't quite know how to get there, but they know that they want to get there. I really hope that they're inspired by your story, whatever sector, um, whatever industry, whatever their dream may be. And also, I feel as though, uh, you know, one of the, the, the key things that stood out was about just the, the fact that the industrialization of the gemstone and diamond industry in Africa can really help to propel the African continent forward. It really is something that we need to be able to look into. And as Africans, we need to, um, you know, like you said, the sky is big enough for all the birds to fly and it's okay to own jewelry from everyone. But please also, as you're, you're, you're engaging with African music, as you're engaging with African culture, and everything also find out about a brand you know a range like um van lele's uh you know house of van Van lele's diamonds and include that as well so that we're we're building into what it is that we're doing but for you your legacy you know if what 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 would you want your ultimate legacy to be how do you want people to remember you um you know hundreds of years from now you know um how do you want people to remember you and van lele's diamonds like what what is it that you want to be able to establish and and also in terms of mentorship is that something that you enjoy doing um you know just to in in closing well to answer those few questions for you i think my i did a day a friend you know, we were going through difficult times during COVID, post-COVID. I was like, what am I going to do? This is so difficult. And a friend of mine told, told me something. Vanya, what you have to understand, your brand, what where you stand, your brand, Van Lelis, is not longer your brand alone. It belongs to the community mm-hmm. for what it stands, mm-hmm. for who you are, your story, your background. So... Whatever decisions you make, you have to think outside your immediate orbit because it's it's bigger than you now. And my legacy is to to make sure Van Lele survives as a brand, as a deeply rooted African brand promoting African gemstones Mm -hmm. and countries and communities where the gemstones come from. 
And to see Van Lelis next, you know, next to rivaling all other big brands that uh, have way much more resources than I do. And we are already there because our positioning, you know, you open Forbes magazine, you see us, they talk about LVMH brands and we right in the middle of there, you know, mm. you open um, and Vogue are, as well, everywhere. Mm. Exactly. But to make sure that one day, I hope I'll be able to own re retail stores standing alongside all those big brands as a very authentic, strongly African brand, creating jewelry that appealed to the global woman. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and my legacy, I hope if I inspire more women and men from the continent or the diaspora to have their own luxury, beautiful businesses is just going to be you know, in the jewelry, because I think in the jewelry, we've been very little represented in, in fine jewelry. Mm. You know, there's mm. not much representation there. And then just to have us alongside in a hundred years, you walk in Place Vendôme in Bond Street, you see this beautiful, strongly Protestant African brand. I'll be very happy. And, and then, And then also opening stores or having on the continent, let's say Ghana, mm. let's say South Africa, you know, mm. and just like you go and buy your diamond engagement ring from Vanilla's Diamonds, you know, this is mm. an African, it's not a South African, but it's an African brand, you mm. know what I mean? And she's yeah. the first, she's, I hope I'm not the only one. I don't want to be the only one ever. We want, mm. I would love to inspire If I can train, I will. All I ask, I'm I'm happy to help because I've done it all and I've done it all pretty much mm -hmm. alone without any... When I say I've done it all alone, even my company, I learn everything from shipping to importing, buying, mm -hmm. sourcing, designing, everything. I know how to do everything inside my company. This is why when I hire mm -hmm. someone... I know exactly, you know, how, how, what you're how much you're for. working, yeah. <laughs> what you're doing. So have the dream, have the plan, action it, and then ask for help. Because I got mm. help, but I started it already, you know. Mm. And I'm here. My story for you without starting anything is to inspire you. When you start something, come in, you know, with the, consistent set of questions and uh, needs and wants. And then I'm happy to guide you through that. Don't mm -hmm. come in for a chit chat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, Vanya, thank you so much. Vanya Leles of Van Leles Diamonds. Thank you very much thank for this you. conversation. Again, yeah. congratulations on, on, on what you're achieving. And also, um, I don't, we didn't really touch on it in the conversation, but I know that ethically sourced gemstones is such a cornerstone um, to what it is that you do as a business. So even from that perspective and sustainability, congratulations on that. You know, thank you so um, much. You, you're definitely ticking off all of the boxes. Um, <laughs> yeah, you. it's just been, I've loved talking to you. It's been fantastic, <laughs> honestly speaking. A simple thing, you go to these markets. I love, like you say, I love the continent. I love going to Nigeria. I go to, I come to Accra quite often. And you go to the markets. Have you ever sat down and understand the amount of cash that flows on the ground on a daily basis? 
Hey, I'm Lika Sumba, and this is our journey across Africa, navigating the intricate landscapes of business, culture, and global influence from the African perspective.